Well, we're going through the book of Acts together, and I believe our chapter today gives us a great example of how Paul, the Apostle Paul, took every opportunity possible to help unbelievers make sense of Christianity and to persuade them to believe. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, you follow along. Before I start reading in verse 13, let me set some context. So what's been going on for several chapters now is that Paul was grabbed by Roman soldiers in the middle of a riot because as he tried to speak to a huge crowd of Jews, they just went crazy and started trying to kill him. So the Roman soldiers intervened because Rome was not a fan of chaos at all. But they don't understand why do they want to kill him? What has he done wrong? So he's being shuffled from one person to the next as they try to sort out and finally... He appealed to Caesar. He made good use of the fact that he's a Roman citizen. That was a big deal back then. And he finally, kind of for the sake of the Jews, kept trying to want to try him in Jerusalem and kill him while they moved him down there. He said, I appeal to Caesar. Well, you don't send a prisoner to Caesar without a clear explanation of why. Felix couldn't sort it out. Festus can't sort it out, the governor. And so he's got King Agrippa and Bernice to listen. He said, I want to get your opinion on What should I say as I send this man to Caesar in Rome? I don't know what to say. Would you listen to him? That's what's happening. Acts 26, verse 13. Paul is speaking before Festus, King Agrippa, and Bernice, as well as, I'm sure, a host of dignitaries all in that room. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we'd all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. If you don't know what's going on there, it's in that day, they would have these sharp sticks that would be set out on the front of the wagon with a point on the end because the oxen would try to kick backwards and just break up the wagon rather than pull it. But you do that a couple times and you decide, I think I'll just pull the wagon. And so he's saying, you've been kicking against someone that you cannot win with. You're kicking against me. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, say it with me. I am, say it. Oh my goodness, he's alive. Yes, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you've seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, both to small and great, 
saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses, he's referring to the whole Old Testament, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king arose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. Now, that's how a king ends a meeting when he doesn't want to hear anymore. He cut him off. When the king stood, you're done and everyone else stands. So Paul really didn't finish his defense. But we've got enough that I think there's some really good stuff we can learn from. So what can we learn from this chapter that might help us today engage our world and the lost people around us? Well, here's what I think we can learn. There are three things that I want you to see that Paul did that we can still do. And one thing that Paul could not do that we still cannot do. Let's start with what we can do. Number one. Number one, you can point people to credible evidence for the claims of Christianity. I tell you this all the time. Christianity is in a category unto itself, unlike any other religion. They're not all equal. You can point to the credible claims for evidence that support Christianity. That's what Paul's doing in verses 25 and 26. Look at it again. He says, I'm not out of my mind, excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of this has escaped his notice. For these things, I love this phrase, these things did not happen in a corner. Look at those two words at the end of verse 25. True and rational In other words, Paul's first argument is not what so often Christians can be guilty of saying, especially to their kids as they start growing up in their home. How do I know it's true? Oh, it's just a feeling that I have deep down inside me like nothing I've ever felt before. My entire faith is just resting on a feeling. Go and do the same. That's not where Paul starts. Don't hear me saying there's no feelings associated with our faith and our walk with the Lord. But that's not where he starts. And that's not the foundation upon which Christianity and our faith rest. Paul doesn't start with feelings. He goes to the public available evidence. In fact, he puts King Agrippa on the spot and says, I know that you know what I'm talking about, King Agrippa. 
Because none of these things happened in a corner. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the explosion of Christianity rocked Jerusalem and sent shockwaves out across the Roman Empire. This was not a private, quiet thing that happened off in a corner somewhere. In other words, I'm going to make a distinction here between Christianity and other great religions and isms and sects that you could hit your wagon to. In other words, this was not like Joseph Smith who started the Mormon church and said, Jesus appeared to me and told me that I'm the head of a new religion. Nobody else was there. Nobody else heard it. Nobody else saw it. You're just going to have to believe me. Same thing is true with Muhammad. At the start of Islam, he said, he appeared to me. I'm the only one that heard him. You're just going to have to trust me. Here we go. Paul says, I'm talking about true and rational things that did not happen in a corner. And I know you know all about it, King Agrippa. Because your family's been part of a dynasty now that's been ruling Judea for decades. What am I talking about? As you read the Gospels and the book of Acts, you can start to get confused with all the Agrippas and the Herods. Herod the Great, Herod, Agrippa, Herod, Herod. So let me help you. It was a dynasty that had ruled for some time that's now led to this man sitting in front of Paul. Paul knows that this man, King Agrippa right now, Paul knows that this man's great-grandfather is the one who wiped out an entire region, thousands of baby boys under two years old in an effort to kill Jesus while he was still a child. That's the Herod Agrippa in the early part of the Gospels. He knows that this man's grandfather is the one who beheaded John the Baptist for saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's here. He's here. He's here. Repent. And he knows that this man's father is the one who martyred the first apostle, James. So this man is well aware of all that's been going on with Christianity. His father grandfather and great-grandfather were so terrified by the power and truthfulness of Christianity that it drove them to try to stop it at all cost. But four generations later now, all it has done is spread like wildfire across the Roman Empire. Why? Despite persecution, despite the killings, the imprisonments, The marginalization, why has it continued to spread? Because there was so much credible historical evidence that took place in public, not in private, with somebody's dream or somebody's personal encounter with God all by themselves. Paul knows that anybody who's been living in Jerusalem during the past 20 years knows what he's talking about. And could not laugh this off because of all the witnesses and sightings and empty tomb and fact that no body was ever recovered or produced a body. You got to think about this, folks. 
Think about all the healings that Jesus did. A man can't walk. He's never walked from birth. He walks. He leaps. Everyone sees it. His relatives know it. A man's been blind from birth. He sees all these people. There are people everywhere still living that saw those things. There are witnesses. And then 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that there were over 500 witnesses in different places to Jesus alive after the resurrection. There are witnesses. There is an empty tomb and there's no dead body that was ever produced or recovered. These things didn't happen in a corner somewhere. Paul knows that. And so he says, check it out. Christians are not crazy. What we believe is rational and true. You can tell, don't be afraid. Say people, investigate the resurrection. Investigate the claims of Christ. Investigate the gospels. Dig into the scriptures. You can still say that today. It is unlike any other book. You take the book of Mormon and it starts to fall apart. Try to find one of the coins it talks about. You can't. Didn't exist. Try to find one of the cities. Try to, try to prove the fact that Jesus lived in America. Really? The Bible, they continue to dig up the cities it talks about. Find the coins it talks about. Confirm the rulers that were ruling at that time and things the Bible talks The Bible is unlike any other book and Christianity is unlike any other religion. Doesn't mean you've got everything you wish you had. It does mean there's enough credible evidence to investigate and have some measure of certainty that I think these things actually happened. Paul points to it, and so can we. But let me show you a second thing that Paul did we can do. Number two, you can talk about personal evidence in the ways that Jesus has changed your own life. Oh my goodness, you guys, don't ever discount the power of a personal testimony. Paul never got tired of telling the story of how Jesus had changed his life radically. It, it never became ho-hum. He never suffered with over-familiarity. Whenever he began to pen about the gospel, I wasn't there, but when you read it, it becomes evident that he has these moments where he just sets his quill pen down and throws his hands up and goes into a doxology. Now to him who was able to, now to him who was, he never he never got over it. Oh, he made me an object of mercy. I was a blasphemer. I was a murderer. I was so lost. And Christ saved me and changed me. In fact, in, a, in the book of Acts, chapter 26, this is the third time now that Dr. Luke, who authors this book, is taking up space telling us Paul's personal testimony. For the third time. He gave it to us in Acts 9. He gave it to us in Acts 22. He's given it to us again in Acts 26. Because there is power in a personal testimony. A changed life. The first 12 verses that I didn't read of this chapter are basically Paul recounting again in front of Agrippa and Bernice and Festus. His own personal testimony of how he was a self-righteous Pharisee that was caught up in religion and focused on outward conformity to all the right rules, which will leave you exhausted and frustrated and easily threatened by anything contrary to what you're trying to do. It's a precarious little house of spiritual cards. You're easily threatened, which is why Paul raged against Christianity the way he did. 
and tried to kill anyone who persisted in promoting this new message because this message undermined everything he'd built his life around, which is focused on who I am, what I'm doing, and how well I'm doing it, how I'm trying to keep the law perfectly. This message of the gospel undermines and kicks the feet out from under any self-effort, merit, achievement, and it sent him into a rage. Why? Because he had no peace or joy or real security in what he was doing and trying to do with religious activities. Don't make a mistake. Some of the people that rage against you the most and are actually angry and, and, and more threatening towards you trying to talk about Jesus, they aren't the most confident. They're the most insecure. I'm not saying go ahead and start a fist fight, but don't give up on them. Don't say, oh, I got to sow the seed where it's more receptive. Don't make that mistake. The people that come across the most angry are not the most confident. They're threatened. They're insecure. You are rocking their little house of cards that they've been trying to comfort themselves in what they're doing and how they're doing it. Oh, on the outside, Paul was fiercely religious and zealous. On the inside, he was eaten up with fears and insecurities and shame and guilt. Because listen to me. Religion, outward conformity, following rules, and what you're trying to achieve can never give you peace with yourself or peace with God. Only a relationship with the God of the universe through His Son, Jesus Christ, will lead to personal peace and peace with God. Nothing else. My own son Harrison was saved this past year. At 28 years old, yes, his mother says, whew, yes. (laughs) At 28 years old, and I know some of you, that was back before COVID and we were having services. But since there's three services, three campuses, you probably all didn't hear his testimony. I think some of what he said bears repeating today with this point that I'm trying to press. So listen to what Harrison said. He said, I was putting my hope and security... In fleeting pleasures that's always left me empty and lonely in the end. Everything I thought was supposed to fulfill me never did. Relationships, money, drugs, everything that the world glorifies on social media always left me wondering why I was so unhappy when I had almost everything that the world would consider a great life. I was waking up every day feeling a sense of dread. Depression filled my life. Anxiety suffocated my thoughts. And I lived in constant fear of the future. Being raised in a pastor's home, I knew everything about being a Christian. Now, some of you right there, that's the disconnect. You're like, yeah, that's really weird, Pastor Brad. Why didn't you just share the gospel and get him to pray the prayer and ask Jesus in his heart? What is wrong with you? Literally, as I've, as I've been willing to be honest and admit that I have some kids that aren't Christians, I've had a, people just look at me like, how hard is this? Just get him to pray the prayer. It shows you have a really bad, unbiblical theology Yes, he prayed the prayer. I baptized him. He was lost as lost can be. He was not born again. He had no new appetite. He was still in darkness. He was still in chains. So we got parents, mamas more than daddies, that just love to say, I was there when you prayed the prayer. You even cried. We know you're saved. You're living like a hellion, but we know you're saved. He just hasn't made Jesus Lord. Mama, please stop and pray for God to save him. Pray for God to save him. Don't just comfort your little mama's heart. And don't dare tell him, we know you're a Christian. Don't do that. You don't know that. 
Now, I also don't know when someone isn't. I never looked at any of my kids and said, you know you're going to hell. You're so lost. I'm a pastor, and I can tell, and you're not in. I never did that. I don't tell anyone they're in. I don't tell anyone they're out. But I do look at fruit, you guys. And I say, oh my goodness, why is there zero appetite for the things of God? Why don't they want the word of God at all? Why don't they want to be around the people of God? And why do they seem so comfortable in the midst of deep darkness? I pray, I pray, I pray, I pray. He says, being raised in a pastor's home, I knew everything about being a Christian. I even knew testimonies of people coming to faith in Christ and how they've been completely changed by him. Listen to what he says, because this is what we're up against. But lies filled my head about how unhappy I'd be if I gave up all the things that currently filled my life. There were many moments during those years that I felt God calling and pulling me in. But every time he did, there was one thing holding me back. I was not willing to drop everything and give my entire life to him. But when I completely gave my life to Christ. I still remember the day. I was sitting in the driveway reading a book on a Sunday. And he, he texted me. He said, oh my goodness, Dad. I think God has saved me. I think God has saved me. And I think he knew what probably I was thinking. Uh-huh. He's like, and this is not me. It was very interesting. He said, this is not me just trying harder. This is God. God has saved me. He came by the house to borrow some shoes for an interview. And he's just pacing around the living room saying, oh, my goodness, I never knew you could have this much peace and joy. I'm like, I've said this forever. I've preached this forever. But it was real to him. then. he's like, oh, my goodness. This, he just couldn't get over it. And he's still not over it. He said, but when I completely gave my life to Christ, the days that followed were filled with a sense of peace and joy that exceeded anything I've ever felt before. My question of how do people really know that this is real and that they're going to heaven was answered 10 times over. The Holy Spirit came rushing into my life and gave me every assurance I'd ever wanted and more. Never in my life did I think that I could have the confidence and freedom of knowing that if I died tomorrow, my sins are all covered and I'm going to heaven. That's what God has to do. Now, here's my point. If you're thinking, but that's your son living like a hellion. Paul was super straight laced. Let me help you with something. You can be lost as you run from the things of God after the world hard. And you can be just as lost in dead religion as you are focused on how much better you are than everybody else. And it's all about what you are doing and trying to please God. Both are just as lost. Sometimes this group is even harder to reach. Because it is hard. He's talking about repenting of the pleasures of the world that he thought would fill his life. It is really hard to repent of your own self-righteousness and your own sense of being better. It is hard to lay that down and it's hard to lay the things of the world down. But until you lay all of it down and come to Jesus Christ saying, save me, have mercy on me. I could never save myself. I need a savior. You're still lost. You can know all about Christianity. You can know verses. You could have grown up in the church. But you're lost. And that's what Paul talks about. This 
this difference between religion and a relationship with Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks about it when he says, Yes, everything else is worthless. Now, my son's talking about the things of the world are worthless. Paul's talking about all my self-righteousness, all my merit charts, all my boxes I was checking. And I grew up as, as a Pharisee and I was in the tribe of Benjamin and I, I, I. All that has to become garbage to you too before Jesus becomes the sweet pearl of great price that he really is. You've got to lay everything else aside. He said, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Jesus, my Lord. For this sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. That's salvation. His righteousness becomes my righteousness on the basis of faith alone. I can't, but you did. Save me, oh God. It's not a combination It's not a combination. It's all completely surrendering and saying, save me. So you can point to credible evidence for the claims of Christianity. Push people. Examine it. Check it out. You can talk about personal evidence in the way that God has changed you. Jesus has made a difference. You know you're not perfect, but do you have a greater measure of peace Joy, sense of purpose. Do you see the world differently? Do you have more security than you did before? I hope so. Talk about it. Because people don't. People don't. But you can do a third thing that Paul does. Number three, you can point to the biblical record of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Paul does that more than once in this chapter with his talk to Agrippa. Look at it in verse 22. I stand here testifying to both small and great. I'm saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said. That was shorthand for all the Old Testament. When they say Moses, they're talking about the first five books. When they say the prophets, they're talking about the rest. In other words, he is saying the Old Testament talks about Jesus and predicts he's coming. He's, don't be guilty of saying, oh, in the Old Testament, people were saved by works. And now in the New Testament, they're saved by grace. That's not what the Bible teaches. Oh, in the Old Testament, people knew they were sinners and the law and all these systems kept continually reminded them that they could never truly be right. And it never really cleansed their conscience. It was temporary, temporary, temporary. And the law was given to cause you to see your great need for a savior. And the Old Testament says he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And now the New Testament says he came. Look what he did. And the end of the New Testament says, and he's coming again. The entire Bible is about Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He said, I'm just saying what Moses and the prophets have said, because I know you believe the Old Testament, that Christ must suffer and that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. What is Paul doing? Paul's driving home to us the fact that the Bible comes alive when you read it as a book that's all about Jesus. It's not just some random collection of stories that were all thrown together willy-nilly. You'll begin to appreciate and enjoy your Bible more when just like any other great book, you start to realize great books usually have, right? 
hey, a great author, this is the best, God. Don't they always have a problem? We got a problem. Sin from the very beginning, Genesis. There's a problem. Oh, we got a main character, Jesus. And we've got a theme that runs from Genesis to Revelation of redemption. That God is going to solve this problem by sending his son to purchase with his blood and redeem and buy back lost sinners. And he does it for us and offers this freely. That's what the Bible is all about. And Paul is acknowledging also, because you think about it. Paul was a scholar, Ph.D. level, no doubt, brilliant Trained at the top. It's like Paul went to Princeton or Yale because he was trained at the feet of Gamaliel. That was the leading big deal teacher in that day. That's the school that Paul went to. So you might think, I can't be used like Paul because I'm not a scholar. And you say, oh my goodness, he was a great orator. We've already seen him on the hill of Areopagus in Greece. We've seen him in all these settings. I'm no great persuasive speaker. Set both those things aside. Scholar, great orator. Because what Paul is doing right here is what all of us can do. He's reminding us that the power and authority for what we believe and why we believe it always rest ultimately on the authority of the scriptures. And you have that. Point people to the Bible. Ask people to read the Bible. Ask them if they have. When I talk to people... And they push back. I say, have you ever read the Gospels? Have you examined who Jesus is for yourself? Top answer. No. They don't say, yeah, it was kind of lame. No. They always say, no, no, no. I'll see. Read it. Read it for yourself. The Gospels. Uh, you say, but they, they say they don't believe the Bible is the word of God. I don't care. And neither does God. They do not have to believe it's the word of God for the power of God to happen while they read it. You realize that? That God doesn't need permission? Oh, they don't believe me, so it's going to have no effect. It's his word. It's living. It's powerful. It discerns. It cuts to the heart. It gets right down where people can't even see and words can't go. This is powerful, and it's dangerous for lost people to pick it up. It's changed thousands of lives just by reading it. Point people to the Bible. Give some about. We are not Judeo-Christian America anymore. Don't assume they've got five Bibles sitting around. Give someone a Bible and give them a translation that can be read. And say, read it. If you have any questions, I'd love to talk to you some more. I'll talk to you at lunch. Let's go out to dinner. Let's get together. Come to my patio. We can point people to the historical record of who Jesus is and what he's done by pointing them to The Bible. That's what Paul ultimately did and reminds us that our authority and hope and confidence does not ultimately rest on our feelings, our thoughts, or even our personal testimony. It rests on the authority of God's unchanging, timeless, powerful, life-changing word. 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 We've been saying it for months as we go through the book of Acts. That God's spirit uses God's... Oh, break my heart. Thank you, baby. She's the best. Uses God's people to accomplish God's purposes in this world by telling others the life-changing good news of the gospel that Jesus came, lived, 
died, rose again, and is coming back and offers forgiveness and we can be made new. We can be forgiven and we can be made new. We can have a security. We can have peace. We can have joy. We can have a sense. I know why I'm here. I know why I'm living. I have purpose. All of that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we can point people to credible evidence. Christianity is not just like, oh, it's just this really cool fantasy that we all believe. We can talk about how it's changed our lives. We can point them to the scriptures, but there's one thing we cannot do that even Paul couldn't do. Number four, you cannot make someone believe or receive this free gift. Now, I know you might say, well, duh, I know that. You may say you know that, but you don't act like you know that. And here's what I mean. We get so frustrated. We, we get so frustrated at times. And here's what I see happen. Wondering, how, what am I doing wrong? How did I not explain this right? Because no one dropped to their knees and prayed the prayer. Like, am I not persuasive enough? Am, am I not clear enough? Am I not articulate enough? Trust me, don't get all worked up about what you did or didn't do. I want to keep getting better at how I communicate and how I approach and how I ask questions. But, oh, what? What a relief it is that it's not all on us. You can do this poorly and someone can get saved and you can stick the landing and think you were amazing and nobody moves because it's not ultimately about you or me. God's spirit has to. Here's what's going on, you guys. God's spirit has to take out a heart of stone and put in a heart. People are not just sick or wounded. They're dead. They're dead Spiritually, there has to be a resurrection. God has to do that. God has to take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. God has to shatter their darkness with explosion of light. Only God can make the gospel sound like the beautiful symphony of hope and life that it really is. Otherwise, it just sounds like foolish noise and looks like a recipe for misery. Oh, I'd be miserable. Can't imagine being a Christian because I'm having so much fun now. It's a lie. They're being lied to. They're deceived. The gospel does not sound beautiful to them. And this explanation looks like a recipe for misery. How's that going to change? Did you ever think about it? Do you know anybody in our country that says, oh my goodness, I, I do know one actually, a friend of mine that's a pastor. But in general, that actually said, I had never heard the gospel before. Oh, my goodness, I'd never heard this. And the first time someone shared it with me, I said, where have I been? Yes, sign me up. No, people have heard it and they were raised hearing it. A friend at work shared it. They went to the fu- a funeral and heard a sermon. They've heard it, heard it, heard it, heard it, heard it. Why in that one moment did it? I'll tell you why. God by his spirit, moved, moved, moved. God has to save people. So it's worth noting, this should be a great encouragement to you. It's worth noting that even though Paul shared his personal testimony, great, it's powerful. And even though Paul challenged them to examine credible evidence, examine it, this didn't happen in a corner. And even though Paul pointed to the scriptures to have power, 
and he even asked great questions. I'm always telling you, ask great questions. Not one single person was converted that day. Zero. Nobody repented. Nobody turned to Christ. And so it raises a question. Why? Was Paul not persuasive enough? Is there not enough credible evidence? Were they not intellectually convinced? You guys, listen to me. I think our passage makes it clear that something else was going on that so often is still going on today. And you can see it in the way Agrippa responds to Paul's... You know, Paul, Paul brings us to a gripping climax with a riveting personal convicting question. Do you believe the prophets, Agrippa? I know you do. How does Agrippa respond in that moment? Look at it in verse 28. He dodges and sidesteps the question. He does not answer the question. Look at it. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? That's not answering the question. It's just saying, hey, you're not going to make me a Christian that fast. One talk. He doesn't say none of the things you're talking about happened. He doesn't say like Festus, you're crazy, man. He doesn't say, I don't believe the Old Testament. Why? Because he does believe the scriptures. He just does not want to become a Christian. He doesn't think Paul's crazy. He just does not want to become a Christian. So what's holding King Agrippa back? Why not? Now, this is a a bit of conjecture, what I'm about to say now. But I think it's worth considering. In light of how we see people operate today, it might have something to do with the woman sitting next to him named Bernice. Like, what does that have to do with anything, Brad? Oh, let me help you. Bernice could have been the star in a reality TV show today. She was married at 11 or 12 years old, divorced and remarried at 13 to her uncle. And she's now living in an incestuous relationship with her brother, King Agrippa. They are brother and sister and they're having sex. They're living together. Haven't even gotten married, but living together. And don't make a mistake and say, oh, it's the Roman Empire. That happened all the time. No, it didn't. It was a scandal But that's how this woman rolls. And that's who Agrippa is running with and living with. And so let me help you here. After being a pastor for more than three decades now, 33 years, I am convinced, you guys, I'm convinced. I've wasted a lot of time in the early years that I don't waste anymore. I am convinced that so many times what people pretend our intellectual objections to Christianity are nothing more than a smokescreen and an excuse to keep living the way they want to live and doing what they want to do with their lives, especially sexually. I've been in the same church for almost 25 years now, so I've been here long enough to watch it happen. Kids that have been raised here, grown up here, in Sunday school, in their homes, hearing the preaching, they go off to college, and within a year... They proclaim they're agnostics or they're atheists or Christianity doesn't stand up to scrutiny. I can't believe this anymore. And they're usually the mom. 
rushes to me. She needs books. And, oh, help me, help me, help me, help me. And I used to give Ravi Zacharias and C.S. Lewis. And I'm not saying there's no place for any of that. Folks, I've learned, ask some questions. Are you sleeping with your girlfriend? Are you sleeping with your boyfriend? Are you having sex all over campus like an animal? Are you partying it up and down with drugs and alcohol? Answer, yeah. Guess what's really going on? I've got to do something to relieve some of this tension and angst I feel between Christianity and what I say I believe and how I'm living. And so it makes me feel better to just say, oh, I don't believe it anymore. I don't believe it. My own son, three years before he got saved, you know, he he was honest with me and he said, Dad, we're watching football one day and during commercials I asked a good question, tried to draw him out. And he's like, honestly, how can millions of people be wrong? And what about homosexuality? And what about, I know some Christians that are such hypocrites and I actually know lost people that live better lives than Christians. In the past, I would have been like, oh, how do I answer all that? And now I just sat there and I said, you're really smart, Harrison. If you've got questions... Look for answers. And I didn't even give him books. He used to, I would, oh, let's meet. We'll go through a book. No, let's not. Because that's not the real deal. I just said, if you want answers, Christianity can stand up to scrutiny. Examine it. He just simply wanted an excuse to keep living the way he was living. That's what's really going on in so many cases. And Paul puts his finger right on it. In Romans chapter 1, verse 28, when he says about this heart condition that we all are born with, he says in Romans 1, 28, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Oh, it doesn't say they don't know there's a God. Oh, help them. Oh, give them some evidence. Oh, my goodness, send them to a blog. They know there's a God. They don't want to acknowledge him as good. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. I don't want to factor God into my life. I don't want God to be in the equation. In other words, I don't want God in my head, my heart, or ruling over my life because I want to live the way I want to live and do what I want to do. And so the biggest problem and objection to Christianity very often is not an ignorance problem that can be solved with additional evidence and information. Guess what it is? It's a resistance problem that's rooted in a preference problem. I prefer to be autonomous and to live as if there is no God so that I can do what I want to do. It's a preference problem. It's a resistance problem. It's not an ignorance problem. And as if that's not a big enough problem and hindrance you got to understand also the way we're born. We are all hardwired, you guys, to achieve, not receive. The human heart resists needing and receiving and focuses relentlessly on achieving. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it because I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. Why would you focus on achieving instead of needing and receiving? Because you still get to stay. I want to be in control. And so verse 18 captures the heart of the gospel well. When it says that they may receive forgiveness. 
You have to receive it. You cannot achieve it. You will never achieve it. You have to receive it. So if you're here today or listening online today and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you've chosen to join us. But I want you to think about something today. Reason and intellect can only bring you to a place of probability regarding Christianity. And I'm not ashamed to say that. Reason and intellect can only bring you to a place of probability. But you can, you can examine and come to a very great place of probability. And you say, well, but I don't do that with other areas of life. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. If you were to be honest, whether to to marry, where to invest your money, or where to place your eternal hope. You can study, 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 ask questions, think, think, think. And at the end of the day, you've got to make a decision and a commitment to put your money here, right? To marry her or him. But you cannot know absolutely 100%. In my own life with our marriage, almost 34 years now, September will be 34 years. My confidence, I'm absolutely certain that I've married the right person. Isn't that good news? And don't take that lightly because I'm the guy in the first three years of our marriage that literally out loud said, I've married the wrong person. Oh, my goodness, my life is toast. This, but because we were Christians, we said, well, we won't divorce. But, wow, life as I know it is over. I should have done another personality test. I wish the Enneagram thing had existed. This didn't have to happen. Wow, we were not careful enough. I was miserable because... I was seeing things about myself I'd never seen before. I was seeing things about her I'd never seen before. It was like, ah! My certainty today, you guys, the certainty I have today has come on the other side of a commitment I made that kept me persevering in this. You make a commitment to Jesus Christ. Some of you are acting like, I just wish there was more evidence. I wish there was more evidence. I wish there was. There was another guy in our church here from the very beginning, Turkey Foot Middle School. Oh, my goodness, I gave him Ravi Zacharias, C.S. Lewis. We did umpteen lunches. And I'm like, what is your objection? What is your concern? Oh! And when he got saved at an Easter service, he grabbed me and said, Brad, I always knew what. He said, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. He said, I always knew. I did not want to give up control of my life. It's not that you wish you had more evidence, my friend. It's you wish this decision about Jesus and Christianity did not involve a total life commitment of surrendering completely to someone else as Lord and Master of your life. But you do not just add Jesus to the wagon of your life or on the edge of your life or the margin of your life He's either Lord of your life or He's not in your life. You confess Him as Lord Jesus and He will save you. You have to come to the point where you're willing to surrender and give Him your whole life. And that fear that I know maybe right now is is rumbling like, oh, that fear that there'll be such a loss, what you're going to give up. Oh, my goodness. Make the commitment. And you'll find that what you gain in peace and joy and purpose and forgiveness, peace with yourself 
And peace with God is unlike anything you ever thought possible. But it's on the other side of a commitment, a decision to give up your life and make him Lord. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for all that you're doing in our world today that is no less powerful, no less significant than what you were doing in the book of Acts. Our world is just as dark. Our world is just as broken. And your spirit is just as present and powerful. And your word is life-changing. And we are your people. You had your people in the book of Acts. And you've got your people now. God, use us even though we don't feel like great scholars. Even though we don't think we're amazing orators. Would you just use us in our weakness to point people credible evidence of Christianity, to point people to the scriptures that are powerful and to tell how you've changed our life. And we'll let you do the heavy lifting. Oh God, we pray you'd take out hearts of stone, that you'd shatter the darkness, that you'd make this gospel sound beautiful. Only you can do that. Thank you for how often you've done it. Thank you that you did it for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.